at one point I, I believed the attacks. Um, you know, when a state with a team of, you know, 50 epidemiologists tells you you're wrong, it's hard not to believe you're wrong. Um, I was scared. Uh, I had this knot in my stomach that literally wouldn't go away. Uh, at some point I wanted to hide. I did hide under my seats. Um, but then I realized quite quickly that this had nothing to do with me. Um, this was all about the kids that, that I once again took an oath to protect. Um, and that these numbers so often, you know, we as researchers, we live in the, in the world of spreadsheets and numbers and stats. Then I realized that every one of these numbers was a child. And it was a child that, that I had probably cared for in that last year or so. Welcome to Peer Spectrum, where we bypass the ordinary and familiar to explore the unsettled edges of medicine. Take us with you anytime, anywhere, and get ready to make your downtime count. Get ready for Peer Spectrum with Keith Mankin and Colin Miller. All right, welcome back. Today, it's our distinct privilege to have Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha on the show. Way before her best-selling book, her countless TV interviews and speaking appearances, before Time Magazine named her one of the 100 most influential people in the entire world, Dr. Mona, as she's known, was just another pediatrician taking care of children in one of the poorest cities in the country. If you're like us, you probably think you know all there is to know about the Flint story at this point. This episode might change your mind, though. Here's some things we didn't know. Flint, Michigan was once one of America's most prosperous cities. Many historians even say that's where the middle class was born. The crisis began when the city switched its water source to the Flint River. This river was once so polluted, it actually caught on fire twice. The entire crisis was completely avoidable. We're talking like $80 a day avoidable. Lead poisoning may be one of the largest threats to American children today. It's literally everywhere around us and very difficult to see or detect. The first abortion pill, made out of lead. The same thing that happened in Flint actually happened in Washington, D.C. in 2004. Thousands of adults and children were exposed to high levels of lead contamination. And even today, we still really have no idea what those long-term effects might be. Choosing to be a whistleblower like Dr. Mona did is a tremendous risk. That's because we only hear about the success stories. What we never hear about are all the whistleblowers who lose their jobs, go bankrupt, get divorced. Some even end up committing suicide. This is an amazing and heroic story, but also a haunting one. You really do have to wonder what would have happened to Flint if there wasn't a Dr. Mona to stand up and fight. We really don't know. The best we can hope for is by sharing her story, others out there, maybe even you, might find the tools and inspiration to do the same thing if you were in the same circumstance. So with that said, let's get started. Dr. Mona, thank you for joining us today. It is great to be with you guys. We were just talking a few seconds before we started here. A lot of this story happened fast. It was rapid, and we're talking just under a month from the time you first got concrete indication that this was a danger to the time where you were doing your first press conference. Take us back to that barbecue with your friends when you first got this wake-up call that something big's happening and your, your kids are in danger. Yeah, so the crisis actually had been going on for a long time. Uh, it had been going on for about 17 months until my eyes were really open to what was happening. Um, and that happened by just sheer serendipity at my home, uh, at a last minute barbecue at my house uh, with some high school girlfriends. And out of pure randomness, one of my high school girlfriends um, happens to be a drinking water expert. Um, and she cornered me in my kitchen and uh, she shared that Flint wasn't treating its water properly and it was missing an important ingredient called corrosion control. And when she said corrosion control, her eyes like bored into my eyes and I immediately understood the seriousness of the situation, but I had no idea what corrosion control was. So I asked her um, and she explained without this important 
ingredient. And as a physician, I think of it like a medicine that was necessary that, you know, would prevent the pipes from corroding. Um, without that ingredient, there would be lead in the water. And, and that was the very first time I heard lead. And really, honestly, before that point, I never even knew there was lead in our plumbing. Yeah, there's a lot that I learned in this, too. I mean, I've always assumed water's pretty safe, uh, you know, no matter where you live. And I think your friend described the, the, the process of, of water purification as an art. It's, there's, it's, there's yeah. a lot of complexity in it, isn't there? Yeah, so, you know, who doesn't assume that when they turn on their tap, their, their water's not safe? I mean, it's the 21st century. It is America literally the richest country in the history of the world. Um, this book takes a lot of deep but dramatic dr dives into history. And I talk about, for example, 19th century London and cholera outbreaks. Like we have come a long way in terms of water treatment. So who doesn't assume that the water isn't safe, but, but we're also in Michigan, which is literally in the middle of the Great Lakes, the largest source of fresh water in the world. But even, you know, regardless of all that, it's, you know, there's rules and regulations and there's people that are charged to make sure that when we turn on our tap, our drinking water is safe. And, you know, these last few years, I, I feel like I should get an honorary degree in like water science or water <laughs> chemistry. It's not what I went to medical school for, but uh, but we we all need to know more public health and environmental health. And, um, and I've learned that it's complicated. And when it comes to lead in water, we were never as a nation intended to get lead-free water. It was never safe. The regulations um, that protect lead and water nationally have not caught up with science. Right. So fill us in, uh, once you were aware of it and once you got the ball rolling, when did you start seeing clinical signs of it? And, and uh, what types of clinical signs were you seeing in your practice when you were looking for them? That is a great question. So the title of my book is called What the Eyes Don't See, um, which refers to the very literal. We do not see lead in water. It's an invisible, odorless, tasteless uh, poison in the water. Um, but uh, we also do not see the consequences of lead exposure. It does not present to your clinic, your EDs, your exam rooms. Lead is known as a silent pediatric epidemic. Uh, I love to trick my medical students and residents. So like, how is a kid going to present, you know, uh, with lead poisoning? They're like, oh, you know, headaches and stomach aches and problems at school, this and that. And the answer is no, it's asymptomatic. Um, and we don't thus see the consequences for for years, if not decades, and when we do see the consequences, things like school problems, behavior problems, um, it's really impossible at that point to prove causations, causation and, and the exposure ha happened so much earlier. So it is something that our, our eyes do not see in the clinical setting. Um, and that's been a really hard uh, concept, this subclinical exposure. Uh, it's been very difficult for physicians who are often myopic, um, to, to understand. Uh, we are so used to acutely treating that patient in front of us um, for, you know, an acute intoxication or right. an ingestion. And, and we, you know, we have in our ICU. And back in the day, that's how we did take care of lead. They were acute symptoms and seizures and coma and kids needed to be acutely chelated. Um, but it's not like that anymore. You know, the science of, you know, environmental health and, and lead toxicity has has told us that there's no safe level. And it has taught us that the, the impact is, is subclinical at a population level. So are you um, at this point screening all the kids in Flint? Is that what's happening or is it? 
Yeah, so we were just funded by the CDC to build a Flint registry, uh, very much modeled after like the World Trade Center registry and, and large exposure-based registries. Uh, so we are screening, and the registry is for everybody, children and adults, and, and the crisis is so much more than than just lead. It's a crisis of kind of trauma and stress, and we now know just how those emotions, uh, you know, can impact lifelong, really, development. Mm -hmm. uh, we also had one of the largest outbreaks of Legionnaire's disease because of this uh -huh. untreated water, where um, at least a dozen folks died. There was an uptick in overall pneumonia mortality. Um, and thus, some of the criminal charges against folks um, are actually negligent homicide charges because of the Legionnaire's disease. Um, so there was a lot of things in this crisis. Uh, so this registry is identifying everybody who was exposed, uh, screening them in terms of health, development, ongoing lead exposure, uh, what kind of services they're utilizing. Um, but rather than this being just a research project or longitudinal monitoring, uh, this registry is different than other registries in that we are actively going to be um, getting people connected to the resources so that we do not see the consequences of this crisis. Uh, so it's actually a service registry. We've been designated by the CDC as a public health authority uh, because our whole goal is to improve public health. All right, we want to get back to some of that, but let's let's talk because it's a it's actually a pretty exciting story too. I mean, yeah. you went through quite a gauntlet here in in a short amount of time. So, the idea of corrosion control, just so we all understand this, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but these are old pipes, old service lines, usually coming mm -hmm. from the, the water mains into the house. Great, um, mm -hmm. they're lead, or they have lead in yeah. them. But yeah. But over the years, all of the mineral deposits that sometimes we see on our showers that come, you know, you know, from condensation, it starts to build up and almost protect the water flowing through there. But once right. you switch the source and you switch the chemical basis, you can have corrosion. And now we're getting back to that lead. So yeah. when I, for, I mean, honestly, when I first heard of this story, I thought of Flint, Michigan as like Cleveland, Ohio. I've got a lot, my parents mm -hmm. are from there, you mm -hmm. know, big industrial mm -hmm. base, a lot mm -hmm. of infrastructure that's old and aging. I thought, right. you know, that's really the root of the problem. And I don't think anything like that would happen in, say, Raleigh, mm -hmm. where I live, where a lot of things were mm -hmm. new. After reading your book, mm -hmm. I, don't, I, I don't think that's true at all. So, yeah. one, why in the world did they switch the water source, do you think? And why, why were they so resistant to look at the data coming out initially? Yeah, so uh, Flint was really in dire economic straits, uh, really had been in crisis for, for years prior to this water crisis, a uh, crisis of kind of disinvestment and unemployment and uh, population loss and poverty, discrimination, lots of issues in Flint that had led to overwhelming disparities, which is one of the reasons I had been in Flint. Um, and because of this kind of near bankruptcy state, Flint was... Uh, taken over by the state. We were under state-appointed emergency management, and the goal of that emergency manager, and there was a series of them, was austerity. It was to save money, uh, and really at no matter what the cost. And it, it, they had decided that the water that we had been buying from Detroit, uh, but it was Great Lakes water, Lake Huron water was too expensive uh, for this kind of bankrupt city. 
and that instead we would draw water from our local Flint River until a new pipeline to the Great Lakes was to be built. And when you just tell that part to like water exports, there is already a red flag. Like you never go from a high quality water source, the Great Lakes, to a lower quality water source, unless maybe you're running out of water, but the Great Lakes at this point is not running out of water. Um, so that was already a red flag. Like why would that ever happen? Um, so we, we switched to the, to the Flint River in April of 2014, um, and a lot of people blame this crisis on the Flint River because it, you know, Flint has a history of industrial pollution. The, that river actually has caught on fire twice, um, <laughs> but it, it, it wasn't the Flint River's fault. It, 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 it would have been a, very difficult to manage on its own. But the fault and the criminality was it was not treated properly with this corrosion control. Um, and even when the people in charge were told to use this corrosion control, they resisted. Um, and the greatest irony is that this treatment chemical, this corrosion control, only would have cost 80 to to $100 a day. Yeah, see, I was just However, about to ask you that because I saw yeah. that in your book. I mean, it's nothing. I mean, uh, it's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. And, you know, that so the pump, the actual pump to install that treatment chemical was never even installed. So there was never an intent to treat this water properly. And, I, you know, I, I ask myself every day, like, why? Like, I mean, I, when I heard about lead in the water, like I stopped sleeping, you know, like, how do these how did these people go to bed at night? You know, like when they knew that this water wasn't being treated properly and, and that it that there could be lead in the water. So there's a lot of investigations and efforts to get at that why. Like, why was this water not treated properly, even when they were told by folks like the EPA that it should be treated properly? It's just, it's it's astonishing. And, you know, a lot of the, the reports and investigations that have come out to getting at that why really point to this as an environmental injustice and point to the demographics of the population as the reason this not only began, but lasted as long as it did. Uh, so once again, getting back at the title of the book, what the eyes don't see, it's literally about, it's also about, you know, people and problems and places we choose not to see people close, you know, there's their eyes were blinded to this problem. They just wanted it to go away. Let's just forget about them. Let's just see how the, you know, Let's just see if we can kind of skate by until we switch back to a new pipeline. Uh, so it was, a, you know, a disregard for this population. Well, let's let's talk about that for a moment before we go on in the story, because you grew up in this area and your parents, you know, immigrated from Iraq. Your your dad was a big GM guy. So you grew up, you know, knowing this area, knowing the people. Tell us about Flint today. What's it like for those of us who only see media coverage of it? Because that's obviously not the whole picture. Yeah. So I am sitting in Flint right now and I'm looking out my window at our gorgeous downtown and there's people walking around. There's tourists, there's people running, people taking selfies. I mean, this is just right outside my window. Flint is, you know, I just right before this interview, I just came from um, a summer camp for Flint kids where I did story time. And these are like six to like nine year olds who are absolutely brilliant and smart and brave and resilient. That is the Flint that I see every day. It is a city that has incredible history um, that has, you know, led the nation in terms of manufacturing, in terms of the labor movement, um, which has, you know, then fallen on very difficult times because of, 
you know, purposeful disinvestment and policy choices that have had left the city really starved. Um, yet it is a city that has remained resilient. There's a I write it in the book, it's a steel-plated grit to the city. Um, and that's what I fell in love with. And that's what I continue to fall in love with. People you know, from all political stripes say Flint is a city that's hard not to fall in love with. Um, it's also a place that, you know, despite this incredible tragedy, it's a place that has come together. People have literally rolled up their sleeves to make sure that the future is bright as possible for the city and especially our children. That And that is the Flint that I know. And that's the Flint that I hope to share in this book. Yes, it was a terrible crisis, but it's also the story of incredible activism and resistance, which we all need to listen to today. But it's also the story of incredible hope. And so I hope it resonates because what the story is, it's, it's not just about Flint. There's so many deeper crises in our nation with, with similar issues from democracy issues, infrastructure issues, the disrespect for science, which we are seeing right now, and yeah. you know, environmental injustice issues. So it, it's a story that is a today's story, but it's, uh, it's fundamentally a story about, about how we take care of our neighbors and open our eyes to problems that are happening all around us. Right. Yeah. So Flint is kind of an everyman in this. They're, they're the ideal American city that, that always maintain the strength despite bad times. And I, I think it's pretty important. You can comment on this uh, because coming living on the outside and my wife is from the Michigan area, so mm -hmm. I know of Flint, Flint although mm -hmm. I've never been. The word we're getting in the media is that it's a burnt out shell. It's like, oh, Flint has been on terrible, um, hard times. And, and we get this image of sort of the, the central part of downtown Detroit or something like that. And that's mm -hmm. completely at odds with the description you've given us yeah. through this entire process. Yeah. And, and that's what we hope to continue to share is that Flint is not going to be remembered for this crisis, but really we hope to be remembered for our recovery, for okay. what we do next. Right now, we are doing one-of-the-kind, state-of-the-art stuff around children especially. And this registry that I mentioned, like we're hoping that this is a tool where we can help share our best practices because there are kids everywhere who are growing up with the same kind of toxicities, be it lead, be it poverty, be it racism, be it unemployment. And we we now know the incredible science that all of these toxic stresses, you know, impacts children's development. So we are very much hoping to share our best practices with, with communities everywhere. So when this first happened, they made the switch to the Flint River. How long did it take for people to start noticing? I think there was a discoloration, too, in the water. Yeah. It wasn't just, the, you know, the unseen lead. But, sure. when, you know, how long did it take for that public reaction to build up? and for people to start saying something, even though a lot of it was being ignored. Yeah. So, I mean, the people of Flint have been and continue to be heroic and they've, they've always uh, been vocal and have raised, you know, concerns about this water very early on within, within weeks to months of the water switch, people noticed color issues and odor issues and taste issues. Um, the, the, the brownish color was because of iron corrosion. So that was the rust, mm -hmm. like that rusty color. That's how, where the color issues came in. Um, shortly thereafter, we started having bacteria in the water. So there was boil advisories and boiling water, um, is one of the worst things you can do with lead in water, but nobody knew there was lead at the time, uh, because it actually concentrates all that lead in whatever you're cooking. So mm -hmm. if you're making macaroni and cheese and the water has lead in it, it's going to end up in the macaroni and cheese. Um, so there was bacteria advisories, uh, bacteria and then boil advisories. And then a lot of chlorine was added, which is obviously a disinfectant to kill the bacteria and just the added chlorine irritated people's skin and eyes. Folks felt like they were drinking out of a swimming pool. 
Um, then uh, so much chlorine was added. We had a buildup of something called disinfectant byproducts, total trihalomethanes. I mean, you can't even say these things. And like, it's not what I trained. I had no, I mean, even though I have an environmental health background, a public health degree, like I had no idea what this stuff was. So TTHMs are long-term carcinogens. We had nine months of safe drinking water violations because of these elevated levels of TTHMs. But throughout every alert, the state said everything was okay. Um, you know, and just a few months, like six months into this water switch, General Motors, which was born in Flint, um, noticed that the water was corroding their engine parts. Wow. So, and this was Octo October of 2014, a full year prior to my press conference, that they noticed the water was corroding their engine parts and they got a free pass to go back to Great Lakes water. Um, so really, you know, shortly after this water switch, there was lots and lots of red flags that should have ended this crisis. Well, at some point, too, they were getting bottled water in City Hall earlier. Then, oh, right? yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm looking at the city building. No, it's the state building. The state building. The state building. The state brought in bottled water for their employees mm. while they were telling the people of Flint that everything was okay. Yeah, so it's a catalog of how not to, isn't it? It's just yeah, a comedy absolutely. of errors. Oh, my God. So many errors. I, I, I really, at every level of government, uh, the EPA, there was a big report that came out le a couple of weeks ago. You know, they should have acted, they say, seven months sooner. They didn't do as much oversight. Like, they silenced a whistleblower. So, you know, at every level, there, you know, the people of Flint were, were just unseen, unheard, um, and unvalued. So uh, I sort of promised we wouldn't ask this question, but it, do you think that some of this was by intent? I mean, not necessarily out to get people, but just, you know, we don't we don't choose to do the um, uh, the steps willful indifference or whatever. Yeah, you know, that's a tough question. So, you know, the perspective that I that I have seen this crisis, like mentioned earlier, is is this perspective of an immigrant who came to this country you know, fleeing, you know, tyranny and dictatorship. And, you know, uh, one of my most, my earliest childhood memories was was seeing a, a picture from the Halepcha massacre in northern, northern Iraq, where Saddam Hussein literally poisoned an entire city. 5,000 people were killed. It's the largest chemical weapons attack uh, of, of a Kurdish population. Um, so, you know, there's some people who wake up and say, I want to poison and kill people today. You know, so I grew up very much knowing what people in power could do to vulnerable populations. I do not think that there was people here in this crisis who woke up and said, I want to poison people today. Right. Um, you know, I think, you know, I think it happened and I think there was, you know, a cover up began shortly thereafter, mm -hmm. uh, maybe because, of, you know, I don't know if it was laziness or stubbornness or just, you know, uh, you know, lack of you know, empathy for this population. So I, I don't know. You know, I don't think it was intentional, although there's people on the Flint who absolutely people in Flint who believe, you know, this was all a conspiracy and that they, they, they were, you know, that it was a genocide or there was an intent to poison them, mm. um, which, which is not far fetched because like, you know, the Flint has been neglected for decades. It is a city that literally um, has been allowed to, to become in crisis um, and because of policies, really. Um, that, you know, cut revenue, cut revenue sharing, uh, starve the city. Yeah. Well, looking at your book and the, the history of Flint, um, Flint was a thorn in the government's side forever. I mean, that's their tradition, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Flint obviously is uh, a largely democratic city. They didn't vote for this current administration, but 
that doesn't matter. That, that should not have played a role at all. I mean, we cannot be a nation where the privileged have better water quality than the poor. I mean, that is not who we are. There are things that government um, must provide that protects our public welfare. Even in Washington, D.C., which I was surprised to learn there was a similar crisis there. I really didn't know anything about this. Just yeah, let's get off track for just a second because it's just a reminder that this can help happen other places. It's not just yeah. Flint, Michigan. So tell us a little bit no. about that. Yeah, so Flint is absolutely not the first lead and water crisis. Um, you know, during this crisis, I start, I read a book called The Great Lead Water Pipe Disaster, which talks about 150 years of lead and water disasters. And mm-hmm. in, in, in my birthplace, Sheffield, England, there was a lead and water disaster in the 1890s. And they noticed that all the pregnant moms lost their babies. So one of the first abortion pills in northern was invented in northern England, and it was a lead pill. There's articles in the British Medical Journal about these lead-based pills. Um, so we have known throughout history about lead and water and, and what it can do. So let's kind of we'll go back to an even you know deeper history. So um, we're scientists, we're physicians. So that the elemental symbol of lead, uh, what is it? Uh, PB. PB. So PB comes from the Latin plumbum, which means plumbing. So lead actually means plumbing, which I didn't even know. Um, And the Romans put lead in their plumbing. That's how they built their aqueducts. Mm -hmm. And a lot of folks, folks hypothesize the demise of the Romans was because they used so much lead in their plumbing. They also did crazy things and like put in their food too. Um, But so, so from the beginning of time, the beginning of civilizations, we've known what lead and water does. And um, in recent history, about a decade ago, Washington, D.C. had a lead and water crisis that was worse than Flint. It lasted years. Um, The levels were even higher than what we saw in Flint in terms of the water lead levels. Um, and no, there was no storm and nobody was held accountable. Um, and Mark Edwards, who was involved in uncovering, you know, the Flint crisis was, was also the guy who, who fought and fought and fought and fought and uncovered the Washington, D.C. lead and water crisis. Yeah. And I encourage everybody to take a look at that because really, I, I don't even remember it. And it wasn't that long ago. It was in 2004 around that time. Yeah. But, 2001 uh, to 2004. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it, it shows even in the nation's capital, where the power seat is, this stuff still happens. And then it's, it's really hard to hit your head around, but yeah, we- but there's, there's parallels, you know, Washington DC was also a majority minority city mm-hmm. and Washington DC like Flint also has democracy issues. The people mm-hmm. of DC are not fully represented. That's true. That's true. And you pointed that out because mm-hmm. Flint was under the uh, emergency manager, right. several of them. Right. And uh, right. they're not voting for these people. Right. Well, so, no matter what their their inner motivations, you know, what these people were doing, it's, it's very clear they were ignoring calls from, from their citizens and ignoring calls from experts and trying to cover this up as best they could until they finally ran into somebody that they couldn't ignore anymore. And Mona, that was you. So, <laughs> and, and it's not just you, to be fair. I mean, you had sure, a few people sure. you were working with. Yeah, but absolutely. Let's, let's look at... Well, talk, tell us about your team, first of all, and then yeah. the people, you you know, who, you know, Ellen, who first, in, you know, brought this to your attention, sure. Mark, some of these other people. And then yeah. what did you do? What were your next steps? Because we're talking about 28 days here from that barbecue to to the first press conference, which is just unbelievably fast. And yeah, we're talking so. about getting an institutional review board approval. All these things <laughs> that normally take a long time happen lightning fast. Tell us about that. 
Yeah. So this story and this book is so much about a team and it is a team that absolutely came together to, to uncover this crisis. And I often say like, it's like a series of dominoes and I was the last domino. So the moms and the activists played a critical, critical role. And then there was an amazing role of investigative journalists who dug and dug and dug and dug and helped expose this crisis. An EPA whistleblower, uh, Mark Edwards, this Virginia tech scientist, when he heard there was lead in Flint's water and the state wasn't doing anything, he literally packed his minivan overnight with grad students and supplies and came to Flint to use citizen science, working hand in hand with the people of Flint to sample the water. Um, then my, my good friend, Elin, who is my high school friend, who's this water expert, formerly with the EPA. Um, and then that all led to me. And I was really kind of that last domino. And I think so often in our professional worlds, especially in medicine, um, we become so hyper-specialized and we live very much in silos. Like, you know, as a pediatrician, I, I kind of thought pediatricians, like we had a monopoly on caring for children. Like who else, who else cares about kids more than, more than us? Like who obviously care about kids a lot, but I was so proven wrong in this, in this crisis because my team of folks couldn't have been more different than me, different professions, different, you know, the different genders, different ethnicities, different states, you know, they vote for different people yet, yet they probably cared more than I did. Um, so, you know, this great lesson is that we need to find that our villages, you know, so often we think that we are alone in these struggles, but I think if we uh, open our eyes, we can find folks who, um, who are, you know, really care about the same things that we do. Um, so when, so when it kind of got to me, uh, when I heard about the possibility of lead in the water from my friend, Elon, um, I knew, I knew I needed science in my pocket. I knew I needed the data to see if that lead in the water was getting into our children. And this research really happened in, in record speed. And, and it really speaks to the fact that we, you know, I work in this public hospital. It's very lean. Everybody knows everybody. Um, our IRB application, so this is the Institutional Review Board application, which is part of doing, you know, research. It's important to protect, you know, patients. Um, in, in big academic institutions, this can take months to get your IRB approved. And literally, our, our, our IRB was approved in one day, which is absolutely wow. unheard, unheard of. Yeah. When, it, when I go talk and do grand rounds at different places, they're like, well, what about your IRB? How did you get that done? I'm like, it took one day. And it's, it's mind boggling because sometimes... Like IRB committees meet four times a year, and that's it. Um, so, so this recent, you know, we and you know, we tried to get this bigger lead data from um, the state and the county because it's one of the surveillance things. Like it's like like flu and HIV, they had this data, um, couldn't get that data. So ultimately, used our electronic medical records, uh, which process most of the labs in our hospital. Processes most of the labs in, in the county. Uh, pulled those records also in record speed. Uh, fortunately, we had gone you know live with our EMR in 2011, um, and, and you know ran this research, which showed uh, an increase in the percentage of elevated lead levels after the water switch, which was an underestimation of exposure because not many kids were being screened. They also weren't being screened at the optimal time for lead and water exposure. They're, they're usually screened for when we worry about household lead exposure. So anyway, so did something that was- hey, Mother, Let me stop you for just a second. And yeah. I know everyone's, a lot of our listeners are going to get mad at me for pointing this out, but I think it's important because everybody's really frustrated with EHRs these days. But yeah. this probably would not have been possible without it, would it have? Absolutely not. So, it's, it's, I think it's a valid point. You made it in your book. It, it is a critical tool. 
Yeah, I, I definitely talk about that in the book. So we had gone live with Epic in 2011, and um, Epic has used the story nationally um, as one of the values of EMR. And mm. since that, since then, they have built other tools that enable providers to quickly look at population level data. Uh, we are currently using Epic to build our Flint registry. It's really the first time that they're also really dipping into the population health world, uh, where we increasingly need to be, especially when we understand kind of the impact of social determinants. So, so yeah, so this is a, this is an EMR success story. And I had always been, I'm kind of an IT geek and I've always been close with, you know, our IT folks and, and, you know, they were able to pull this data also very quickly. Um, and then we committed academic disobedience. So doctors and professors and academics, um, we are supposed to uh, share our research through the peer review process. Uh, we are supposed to publish and present. Um, however, that takes a long time. Uh, and when we had this research, we, you know, we had to share this as soon as possible. So I literally walked out of my clinic, you know, exam room and, and into a press conference uh, to share to share this research. Um, I received an award wow. from M MIT called an, a Disobedience Award, which was difficult, <laughs> di difficult to explain to my children. Um, however, um, <laughs> you haven't told them yet. <laughs> You guys have to listen. Uh, <laughs> however, um, you know, it's it's important. You know, we, we so often we do our work in medicine and it ends up in journals that nobody reads uh, or, you know, or it doesn't directly benefit the community that we serve. Uh, so I, I think it's an important lesson that, you know, not that everybody has to be disobedient, but that we have to sometimes uh, do things uh, in the best interest of the patients and, and the communities that we yeah. serve, the people that we literally took an oath to protect. Uh, so share this research very publicly and 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 was attacked uh really uh, no surprise because everybody in the story had been attacked and dismissed um, but it was a little unsettling when you are sharing science and evidence and facts and numbers uh, and, and, and how, and how did those texts take place i mean were they personal were they did it, was it a risk to your profession at this point you're in the hospital i mean what was going yeah. through your head and what, what was coming at you yeah. So in page turning detail, it's all in the book. But yeah, but it was it, immediately after this press conference, uh, the state uh, and many arms of the state began to dismiss not only my credibility, but also the research, uh, saying that I was an unfortunate researcher causing near hysteria, which is also quite sexist, uh, that I was splicing and dicing numbers. And that, um, you know, the worst was that the state's numbers, because remember, they had all these numbers because it's part of surveillance, mm -hmm. but the state's numbers were not consistent with my numbers. Uh, so right away at, at different levels, both personally, you know, and in terms of the science, we were being attacked. Interesting. So um, at one point, I, 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 I believed the attacks. Um, you know, when the state with a team of you know, 50 epidemiologists tells you you're wrong, it's hard not to believe you're wrong. Um, I was scared. Uh, I had this knot in my stomach that literally wouldn't go away. Uh, at some point, I wanted to hide. I did hide under my sheets. Um, but then I realized quite quickly that this had nothing to do with me. Um, this was all about the kids that, that I once again took an oath to protect. Um, and that these numbers so often, you know, we as researchers, we live in the, in the world of spreadsheets and numbers and stats. Then I realized that every one of these numbers was a child. And it was a child that, that I had probably cared for in that last year or so. And they're the ones that got me back in this fight. And we, we fought back with more numbers. We fought back with more stats and evidence. And, and, and ultimately, it was, you know, our science that spoke truth to power and the state eventually conceded. You know, that was very difficult, you know, when you thought about your patients, because 
you had to hold on to this data long enough to verify it. I mean, there's a lot of checks that you had to do as a researcher. Absolutely. Because you didn't want to get up there and give them some sort of flank to go after you. I mean, so there was a process to this, right? No, yeah. I mean, there was checking and double checking and, you know, looking at other research and controlling for seasons and like, you know, replicating other, you know, similar projects. So yeah, there was a lot of work uh, that went into this to make sure that we had it right. And, and the numbers didn't lie, you know, any way we sliced it, any way we did this research, there was an increase. So we were confident in, in our science. Definitely. Well, how long did it take for the governor on down to become convinced? Because they sure weren't initially. Yeah, so a couple of weeks after this press conference, while they were still attacking me, um, the state's medical doctor, the chief medical executive, called me and said, let's have a physician-to-physician conversation, which, as you know, in medicine means, like, let's cut the crap. Uh, you know, let's get to what's going on. Uh, and uh, she's like, well, how did you do your research? Um, she's like, I want to, you know, go back and I want our team to look at our numbers. So we had a very academic doctor conversation. I started sharing, you know, other literature about, for example, lead and water and how it has a seasonality to it. Um, and we had this very much back and forth and she got, you know, the, the, the state folks to go back and look at the data. And, and when they did, uh, they did find the same thing that yes, there was an increase in the lead levels of children. Uh, so it was probably two weeks after my press conference that the state then had a press conference conceding saying, yes, we, you know, we looked at our data, we agree there is a problem. Um, and that kind of really set forth the recovery. And in, in less than a month after my press conference, we switched back to that Great Lakes water. Yeah. Amazing. So, so despite everything you went through, it's still a quick process. I mean, it still oh, went meteorically uh, fast. Absolutely. And and Mark Edwards, who was part of like the DC fight, calls Flint a miracle. He's like, and and you know, nobody, we never expected this to happen. We were we were getting ready for a years-long fight. Nobody expected this to happen as long as quickly as it did. Uh, but really, you know, it was still 18 months that folks were on this water, you know. That, so it's, it still was a long time, but but the turnaround happened quite quickly. I never expected the governor to apologize. Like, oh. you know, and we, I have to give him credit. <clears throat> so uh, a lot, you know, a lot happened that we, we did not expect to happen. When they did apologize, um, do you, I mean, do you think at that point they had looked at this data or were they just making this up before when they said their data was inconsistent with yours? Yeah. So part of the charges against the state are the cover up charges. So in in released emails via FOIA, they actually had looked at this blood data the mm. previous summer and they had seen a spike and they covered up that spike. So they have cover up charges against them because of mm. that. Mm. So I don't know, isn't it not maybe not the same people that I interacted with? But, yeah, they had seen this. So at the end, I mean, so many times when you hear stories like this or white collar crimes, nobody ever goes to jail. Mm. They just pay fines. I, I mean, in this case, there are are there people going to jail for this? Or are there people with yeah charges? So this, yeah, the, and that's how I mean, this is this is happening right now. This story is not history. Uh, some of the trials were actually ongoing this week. Wow. Uh, the you know the the head of the state health department, uh, the chief medical doctor, are charged with negligent homicide because of the Legionnaires' disease. Um, the the office of drinking water at the state level, they they've all been charged with different things, including lying to the EPA. Uh, so there's about about 
over a dozen criminal charges, including those homicide charges, uh, and and those trials are all ongoing, and and including large class action lawsuits and other investigations. From example, for example, from the EPA, the Civil Rights Commission, and other task forces that have also looked into this. So we hear the political side, and we actually, uh, you know, we're aware of the trials and everything. Um, what we don't really know is where is Flint right now in terms of its water? Is it um, on the mend? Are things getting better? Or what's yeah, the circumstance? Absolutely. So, you know, like I mentioned, shortly, like less than a month after my press conference, we went back to Great Lakes water. So, um, however, the water was not safe to drink because the 18 right. months that we were on this corrosive, untreated water, it ate up our pipes. The right. folks... The folks at the EPA said it was like drinking through a lead-painted straw, and you never knew when a piece of kind of lead scale would come off into the drinking water. So Flint is doing something amazing. We are replacing our lead pipes, uh, and we will only be the third city in the country that has replaced their lead pipes. And we're doing it in less time than any other city. Uh, so the two other cities that have done it are Lansing, Michigan, Madison, Wisconsin. Took them over a decade. Uh, right. We are doing it by lawsuit mandate by 2020. We've already replaced over 6,000 lead pipes, and we have about 9,000 more to go. So about almost halfway through. Mm -hmm. um, and, and this is something every community needs to do because uh, lead service lines weren't restricted until 1986, but lead in actually our fixtures and faucets in, in the brass wasn't restricted until 2014. <laughs> uh, so Gosh. one of uh, it's unbelievable. And I mean, the lead lobby was so, so strong. Uh, so one of the amazing, I mean, there's been so many positive ripple effects from the story, but people all over are now testing. You hear almost week after week about a school who's testing and finding lead in water and putting in protections. Other cities, Milwaukee just passed the bill to replace their lead pipes. So lots of great awareness and education and action is happening, which has needed to happen for a long time to, um, to minimize children's exposure. So the corrosion protection would have been helpful, but in the long run, after all is said and done, this is a better solution. Replacing the pipes is, yeah. is a long-term solution. Yeah. So we, we obviously cannot replace everybody's interior plumbing. So the plumbing right. in your home is called premise plumbing. So that's where you also need the optimized corrosion control because not every fixture and faucet can be replaced, you know, after 2014. Uh, so, you know, the biggest uh, contribution of lead and water is if you have a lead service line. Um, but, you know, so that significantly minimizes risk. You need the combination of both to happen. I see. So even in D.C. right now, they still haven't replaced all their pipes, right? I mean, this is still definitely, an, yeah. a, you know, an ongoing issue around the country. You, you, you mentioned something that's interesting, too. So, most kids, as I understand it, on Medicaid are regularly uh, screened for lead. Um, really, you describe them as almost canaries. You know, they're going yeah. in and you're detecting lead exposure through their bodies, basically. Yeah, it's really better, messed up. Yeah, yes. I mean, is there a better way to do this, yes, to, to look for is. lead paint in houses? I mean, yes. what, what, what are the it. test kits? Are they cheap? Are they easy yeah. to use? I mean, what's yeah. understand there? Yeah, so... It's absolutely backwards what we do in terms of lead exposure. So we literally are using children all over this country as environmental detectors. When we find a child with an elevated lead level, that just tells us there's an environmental problem, but it is too late for that child. Lead is a irreversible neurotoxin. So we need to do something 
which is called primary prevention. That's, you know, in public health, <coughs> primary prevention is where we never expose a child to something. They should never be exposed to lead. So also because of Flint, there's been new investment in more primary prevention efforts nationally. Massachusetts is amazing. Before a child moves into a home, they actually do a, a lead inspection mm -hmm. of their paint, their soil, their dust, their water before a kid moves in. Um, so there are now efforts um, at this primary prevention. And it, the science is there. We, we, we know how to do it. Um, and, and we also know the economic value. So a report that came out a couple of years ago from Pew said that if we eliminated children's exposure to lead, so before they even got exposed, we would save our nation 80 billion B billion dollars a year. Uh, when you think of decreased economic productivity and healthcare costs and special education costs and criminal justice costs. So these massive societal costs uh, would be saved if we proactively eliminated children's lead exposure. Unbelievable. It's just, you almost have to just let that settle for a moment. I mean, <laughs> this is a Unfortunately, huge yeah. public health crisis. Yeah. And I don't know. I guess lead is just unfortunately a pretty useful additive in a lot of manufacturing yeah. and yeah, fuels and, and everything else. And, and it's it's just been so hard to get rid of. It's Well, it's a heavy metal. It persists. Um, and, you know, we put it in so much. We put it in paint. And, you know, we even mandated it in, like, uh, federal housing projects. Uh, we put it in our plumbing. We put it in our gasoline. There's and uh, that has poisoned and killed more people right. in this world than any other form of lead. And that was also a, a Flint General Motors did that. Uh, so there, you know, that we've lead is an amazing metal. It's malleable. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's strong. It's, you know, makes colors brighter when it's in paint and lasts longer. So, and it's, it continues to be used. We still use lead in fishing, uh, lead in bullets, um, lead in jet fuel. So unbelievably, it's it's still ex it's still in use, despite the incredible science, especially over the last few decades, that tell us that there is no safe level and that the lowest levels can cause the steepest impact in, in cognition and behavior. Well, Mano, we're getting close to the time, and I know you've got a lot to get back to, and that's kind of where I want to kind of wrap things up here. I mean, you run a residency program. At, at Hurley, you, your your life changed a bit though when all this happened. Just tell us how it's changed right now, and how you manage your time. Honestly, with all the demands, I mean, even people like Keith and I asking for you to come on, and we appreciate it. But just what's a day like for you right now? How's how's life changed? Yeah, so I actually gave up the residency program as of this July 1st. So I no longer run the pediatric residency program, but I did start a fellowship, um, a pediatric public health fellowship uh, to, you know, I'm, I've, I will always be a medical educator, um, and this is a commitment to, to train more pediatricians in, in public health concepts. But I spend my every day um, directing um, this Michigan State University Hurley Children's Hospital Pediatric Public Health Initiative, and it is our model public health program to flip the story for our Flint kids, to really, in a broad, wraparound approach, improve out their outcomes. Uh, so we are working on things like, you know, early child care and high quality preschool and early literacy programs and healthcare access, uh, mindfulness in schools, um, you know, breastfeeding, you know, interventions. So all of these big uh, population health efforts, uh, including the ongoing advocacy uh, to, to improve the lives of Flint children. And in my kind of academic data-driven hat, the registry is part of that to, to really be able to share how Flint is doing in, in, an, in an academic 
quantitative sense and to be able to share our best practices. So that is kind of the work that I get to do now. And it's an absolute privilege. Uh, I'm still in clinic. I'm in clinic tomorrow morning. You know, I, I go from, you know, holding the hands of, you know, one tiny child to being able to hold the hand of hands of an entire population of children. And mm -hmm. I love to be able to, uh, that, that I have that, that impact at, at such a broader level. Yeah, you know, kids are all different ages, but uh, how have they reacted to this? Do they ask you questions about it? Uh, you've seen it in the news. <laughs> my my children, your children, um, and, so, and, the, and yeah. the, your patients. Yeah, so yeah, you know, I'm in clinic. They're like, oh, Doctor Bono, I saw you on TV, um, and then give them a hug, and you know, we do their well child visit. Uh, so you know, I try to stay as grounded as possible. So you know, this book has put me on this national book tour, and and you know, given me a chance to talk to more great folks like you, which is phenomenal. That's why you write a book to share the story to impact more children. Uh, but I also am committed to being as grounded as possible, um, and because really, our work in Flint is just beginning. Can you comment uh, for the clinicians who are listening the importance of clinical activism? I mean, yeah. if you you could very well have said, um, well, you know, yeah, I'll treat the kids when they're sick, but it's not really my problem. And clearly you didn't. Um, yeah. It came with yeah. a cost, but but obviously worth it hearing you talk. What what how what steps, what tips would you give to people who see something and want to step forward but don't really know how to do it? Yeah, you know, we, we all went into medicine because we wanted to serve, we wanted to help people. Right. And so so often as we progress through our training, um, we, we lose that altruism or we get just so busy, we get consumed with billing and coding and ICD-10 and EMRs and all this other stuff that consume our lives in 15-minute patient visits. Um, but fundamentally, we have to, I think, you know, we have to pause, we have to take a step back, um, we have to kind of look at that that wider picture of what's happening with our patients. You know, when my new doctors start, my new residents who just started like a month ago, um, I tell them, congratulations, you're a doctor now. But remember, medicine is only about 15% of health outcomes. It's So we screen, you know, we screen for poverty and we screen for blood pressure and we screen for like food insecurity and we screen for this. Um, so it's important that, that clinicians recognize that wider lens that our patients live in. They are not just you know, people in our exam rooms, there are people who live in a community where there's many contributions to their health outcomes. Um, part of my work has also, you know, been this reminder to doctors that you have an incredible, powerful voice. Um, you are so credible in your community. People are waiting to hear you. They want to hear you because when you speak, people will listen. Mm. Um, and I think physicians every day need that reminder that they are powerful and that they can play an important role in their communities. Well, Mona, that about wraps it up here. And, and you know, I want to thank you again for joining us, but also just, just as a parent, you know, I, I love my daughter's pediatrician. I think he's a great yeah. guy and I think he would do anything yeah. for her, but I know you would do anything for these kids. And <laughs> absolutely, you know, that's really fundamentally what you were doing. You were looking out for your kids and I just want to thank you for what you've done. I mean, this did thank not come you. without risks to you and there were a lot of unknowns and a lot of other people may have seen something and overlooked it or made a decision not to get involved. You, you didn't. And, right. um, I just have a lot of admiration for you. Thank you. Absolutely. So what, what we all need to be doing. Thank you. Um, but Mona, thank you again for taking the time and thank you. Um, to everybody out there listening, whenever you're listening, wherever, take care. We'll see you here next time. Thanks for joining us on Peer Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at PeerSpectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at PeerSpectrum.com.